Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors all over the world. Uh, this next guest is a repeat guest, and this is one of our first that we can have back on. Encore. 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 We had such a good conversation in the first one, and he has multiple books. So we said, come on back, because we have a lot to talk about. And uh, we have him here right now. August Turak has another book out there. I think this is, I don't know if this is the first one or the second one, but you said that you look at them as almost like bookends. And this one is called Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. One CEO's quest for meaning and authenticity. So August Turak, welcome back to Million Dollar Story, sir. Right. And of course, you know, let's come on, let's throw the Pittsburgh thing in there, right? <laughs> That's right. The Michael Keaton stories. That's yeah, no, I'm, right. from, I'm, from, I'm from Pittsburgh. So uh, actually, my my cousin just resigned as the uh, strength and conditioning coach for the Steelers after 24 years with the, with them. But, wow. Uh, and you're rocking the pit hat. Is that for me? Is that for yep, yeah, yeah, okay. I went, no, yeah, we both went to pit, didn't you? went to pit, didn't you? I went to Duquesne. I partied at Pitt. Oh, <laughs> I, w- I went I went to pit. My dad and mother both went to Duquesne. And my brothers went to a Duquesne Law School. So we oh, had nice. a Duquesne uh, connection there too. Yeah, we got we've definitely uh close ties. I told my dad whenever I finished up that uh episode, I said, I know a guy who knows Michael Keaton very well. And he was like, because he my dad graduated um and it, his, uh, so I think I might've told you my, my dad's obviously his, my dad's last name is Fallot, but my dad's first name is John. And, uh, he went to the same school and I think he graduated two years prior or two years afterwards. So I was like, Turek, have you ever heard of a Turek? And he's like, no, I don't know. Well, I didn't go to, I didn't go to school with Mike. Um, no. Mike, yeah. You worked Mike with him. Went, that was Mike, it. Mike went to Montour high school. That's it. That's where my dad went. Yeah. He went to Montour and, uh, he's from Robinson township. And I actually worked with him out in Coriopolis uh, on a for on a surveying crew for a couple of years. That's how I know Mike. Gotcha. So so we didn't actually go to school together. But anyway, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. Business secrets of the Trappist monks. Okay. So right. you are a spiritual guy. You're all about purpose and meaning. And I think that um that's why we uh can get along so well. I think it all starts with the self. And I believe, and I don't know if we talked about this in the first episode, but uh, I believe a man will stop where he finds peace, not power, not success, uh, but where he finds peace. And I think once you find peace, it's like you have everything. And whenever you don't need anything anymore, that's when you can obtain it, if that makes sense. Right, right. Well, you're making the same point that I make in Business Secrets of Trappist Monks. Well, first of all, as I mentioned, I I got... I'm a um, accidental author because I was an entrepreneur. I worked for MTV when it first started out. I was one of the founders of MTV. I eventually became an entrepreneur. I was at, but spirituality was always my true love. And I was coaching college students at Duke University back in the night, uh, late nineties, early two thousands. And I entered a con. They talked me into entering a contest um, for the Templeton Foundation's Power of Purpose Essay Contest, where I had to answer the question: What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life in thirty five hundred words or less? Um, I'd never written anything before in my life for publication. Um, and I had like a week to do it in and, and I was up against professional writers. It was international. It'd been going on for over a year. Anyway, long story short, I read, I wrote this essay about a monk called brother John from this monastery where a Trappist monastery in South Carolina, where I hang out uh, all the time. I'm a monastic guest there, which means that I stay, um, sometimes for extended periods, like a month or two months or even three months, um, where I live just like a monk, uh, where I have it and the whole bit. They have a special program. They're very cool. I highly recommend it. Um, it's a wonderful program. It's only open to men, but 
uh, it's a really cool program. Hmm. You get up at three in the morning with the monks and do everything that the monks do. But uh, so I wrote this essay about an encounter on Christmas Eve between me and Brother John that taught me the uh, purpose of life. And um, lo and behold, I won the $100,000 grand prize. And I went up against 10,000 essays from 47 countries and I won the grand prize. And this launched me on my uh, writing career. Um, a couple of years later, I was just hanging around here at my farm and I ended up writing a what I thought was a white paper um, on why these monks are so darn good at business. Um, when they don't care about business and they only work four hours a day, they keep silent. They're all 65 years old. Their businesses are very mundane, eggs and mushrooms and fertilizer. And, um, yet everything they touch turns to gold. So why are they so guard, uh, gosh, darn good at business? I wrote this white paper. I sent it out to some friends. Lo and behold, I get a call from the uh, uh, Forbes magazine, the editor of Forbes magazine. He said, somebody gave me this. I love it. I want to print it. As a, but it has to be a four-part article because it's not wasn't designed to be an article. He said, I said, would you be willing to do that? I said, yeah, great. He said, I don't want to change a word, except I want to change the title. I want to call it Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And so he publishes it as business, and it goes viral. And it became the most popular uh, for several weeks. It was the most popular article on Forbes. They used to have a box up there that would give you the top five articles. And for like two weeks, it was Business Secrets Part 1, Business Secrets Part 2, Business Secrets Part 3, Business Secrets. I had the top four out of the five. That led to uh, Columbia Business School Publishing getting in touch with me and asking me if I would like to turn it into a book, um, which I then did, which is called Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. By the way, 238 yeah. reviews. This is resonating quite well with the audience. So incredible oh, it's, work, man. You know, if, I, if I'm having a bad day. <laughs> What I do is I go on go on Amazon, I read some of those reviews, and I think, wow, I wish somebody would say something like that. About, Wait a second, they are saying it about you. <laughs> <laughs> it always cheers me up. Yeah, the, it's been translated into uh, Spanish and Portuguese and Chinese, and and it's there's audible. There's an audible version of it and everything, so it's far outstripped what I expected of it. Five and the stars reason across I, the board, man. I mean, people are loving this. Yeah, they, it's really, really been a, it's been an extremely, really popular book. And it's led to me actually giving talks at the Vatican. I've been to the Vatican and talked to, to the Vatican um, universities there. So the, the reason I say their book ends is because what I end up saying that the purpose of life uh, in my first essay, The Brother John, which is now another book, I turned it into a book called Brother John, The Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life. Um the purpose of life is to become the best human being we can possibly be. It's not relative. It's not different folks for different, different strokes for different folks. It's not what you feel or what. No, the, every single human beings here on the planet to become the best example of a human being as you can possibly be. Now, of course, that's where the variety comes in because you may do it as a doctor and I may do it as a lawyer or whatever. But we're all here to do the same thing. And then I move further and I say, what, what was, the, what was the, the message that Brother John taught me? What is the best human being? Selflessness. And, um, and I pick up, so that's the individual. So I pick up on this concept in the Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And I say that, you know, what we're all longing we think we're longing for selfishness, but we're all longing for selflessness. 
And my proof, so the first part of the book, I get into my proof for this concept. And um, my proof is that everything that we um, think of as like self-consciousness is um, a very unpleasant experience. So when you're self-conscious, you can't get an erection. You can't enjoy a party. You you get tongue-tied when you're trying to give a speech. You're thinking of yourself. That's all you're exactly. thinking of. Exactly. Boy, I like talking to you. <laughs> um, and, uh, and think of it, uh, you know, when you're depressed, and I've gone through deep depression. When somebody is very, very depressed, that's all you can think about is yourself. Yep. You sit there in a chair and you think, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed. You can't, you know, so we have expressions like getting out of your own way. So when are we happiest? We're happiest when we forget ourselves. We're happy when we're absorbed in a task. When we say we're absorbed in a task, what is absorbed? Our sense of self. When when things, the time flies by and we're having the most fun is when we have no conception that there's any separation between me and what I'm trying to do or where I'm at. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, and when we get into trouble is when we get in our own way. Um, and I said, you know, when you get depressed, you feel like the world is too much with me, but it's not the world that's too much with you. You're too much with yourself. But, um, so what we're all trying to do is, is, is get, get rid of this sense of selfishness. We're actually trying to long for, but unfortunately we make the mistake of using. So what do we use in order to try and get rid of this distraction? You know, I go to the, you know, uh, I'm getting trouble with my, with my family because my brother and I, we live in North Carolina. So we're Carolina hurricanes fans now. Right. Um, and, we, and we've betrayed the penguins. Well, even I think we, we can this year. You're allowed to do it this year. Even, even, even this though, year. even though we watched the game, we watched the game last night against Florida, but anyway, um, and we'll talk about that later in the program. I'll give you a blow by blow about the game, but, uh, you know, I go to the games with my brother, and you can't. You, there's not a second that they don't blare the jumbotron on you. What's that telling you? Is that people cannot live with themselves for one second without being distracted? We pay all this money to be distracted all the time. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what I really pointed out in my saying that hey, we, we really want is selflessness, is that we go to these movies. We and back when I was in marketing, we had a concept called dollar votes. It's one of my favorite, favorite business concepts, which is if you want to find out what people really care about, don't ask them. If you ask people what they, oh, world peace. Everybody cares about world peace, right? But watch what they spend their money on. Show me what you buy and I'll show Show, you what's important to you. Exactly. Boy, I like talking to you. So so we call that dollar votes. So I actually built a business around that. We didn't do surveys. We would actually try to sell products. Um, and if people were willing to buy them, then we would build them. <laughs> but um, so we're looking for dollar votes. So what do I see when I look around? What are people spending their money on? Stories. Mm. We spend billions and billions of dollars every year um, going to movies and reading books or whatever it is on storytelling. And as Joseph Campbell, uh, so that tells me we really, there's something that, that these stories are delivering that we are insatiably hungry for. Uh, and regardless, by the way, whether it's good times or bad, in bad times, we even spend more money going to the movies, right? So what did Joseph Campbell come up with? He came up with this idea. He didn't invent it, but he showed that for thousands of years, all these stories, if you scrape away the surface differences, are all based on the hero's journey. 
and and these stories are all oh, and i mentioned book uh, movies like uh groundhog day and and the devil wears prada and 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 um um Star Wars and all these different movies that I mentioned, they're all based on the same thing, the hero's journey. And real quickly, the hero's journey, and I, I condensed it for the sake of, 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 of brevity, which hits six. God, I love soul. this type of uh, conversation. Um, it's so, all about the hero's journey everywhere. Exactly. Yep. So the first stage of the hero's journey is the call. Mm-hmm. This is what we would call vocation. In religious literature, it's the burning bush calling to Moses. That's his, that's his call. Or the Virgin Mary shows up, the angel shows up to the Virgin Mary and says, hey, guess what? We got plans for you. That, that's the call. The second stage in the, in, in the movies, it's typically, I got this movie in my mind, it's, you know, is this, imagine this car coming through the desert and the dust is all around it and everything. It finds this old ramshackle house in the middle of the desert someplace and it parks and then out of it is this spiffy young captain in this spiffy uniform. And all of a sudden the door opens and here comes Clint, an old Clint Eastwood drunk, you know, and it, at 12 noon and he, what the hell do you want? You know? And he says, we need you to come back because only you can stop the, you know, you're the only one that can fly the plane that'll, that'll, that'll save the universe. So that's his call. These, all these movies are bit, you know, if you look at all these movies, you'll always be, there's, there'll always be a call. Mm-hmm. You know, the hero is called. The second stage is resistance to the call. Moses says, no, not me, not me. You know, Mary reacts with terror, with abject terror. So the angel has to say, be not be afraid. That's her resistance to the call, fear. In the movie, get the hell out of here. I wouldn't come back and lay out the way you guys treated me when I had to put up with all that BS for 30 years in the military. I wouldn't, you know. So there's always that resistance to the to the call. Then the hero eventually accepts. Yep. For whatever reasons, he eventually accepts. The next stage is the desert, and he this is where he gets trained. There's always a training, you know. Whether it's you know he's got to go out, you know, and 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 you know, Clint Eastwood's got to be trained on the airplane. And it looks like he's not going to be able to do it, or Yoda is yelling, "Don't try, do." as he's training him in the desert or the karate kid on off on off or or um um morpheus in in the in the uh matrix beats the slot keeps beating the snot out of neo over and over again you know until he finally can learn to fly or whatever it is so that's the desert stage and in the course in the bible and all these other um Moses. 40 years. Moses right. has to go out in the desert for 40 years. Jesus goes out in the desert for 40, 40 days. days. There, all these religions have this, have the desert motif. The next stage of the hero's journey, the hero now emerges and he's trained. He's full of power. He's full of piss and vinegar, as they say, right? Now the temptation, the great trial happens. Is he going to, this is the reason why we're hanging on this, because is he going to use this power for good? For selfless reasons or for selfish reasons? If it's Darth Vader, he goes to the dark side. If it's Al Pacino in in, in The Godfather, he goes to the dark side. Um, um, but regardless, so we're, that's the tension point. How's he going to use this power? And then the next stage of the hero's journey, which I think has done the you know, is the death and rebirth. There's some kind of transformation that has to happen because the, the because he starts out usually as a selfish, you know what, and he's got to be transformed. Mm-hmm. 
And in uh, Groundhog Day, you know, finally, after years and years, they even apply it's kind of centuries of banging his head against the wall. He finally stops trying to manipulate people and stuff like that. And he goes through a transformation and he becomes a selfless person, you know. Um, this is where Neo realizes there is no spoon. Well, <laughs> even even more, if you look in that, that's my favorite, because what happens there, Mike, is that um, uh, Neo actually dies. He's fighting Agent Smith and Agent Smith kills him, literally kills him. He's, his heart stops. But he is connected by a phone line back to the mothership. He's in the Matrix, which is the desert. It's and he, but he's connected. He's Trinity. Why is her father? God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. Exactly. You're the first person that's picked up on that. Yes. It's Trinity. So this is, and the, and what is the phone line? Grace. This is the way she's in heaven. And he's, he's mired in the, in the, in the, in, in the matrix, which is not real, which is the earth. And uh, so her love comes down that phone line in the form of grace and Trinity and brings him back to life. And once he comes back to life, he's no longer fighting on his own power that he got from training with Morpheus. He's now he's now got God's power on his side, and now he's able to overcome and defeat. And then the final stage of the hero's journey is the return to help others. And that's wonderfully done. If you've seen The Devil Wears Prada, people make fun of me. I actually don't fan. know that, that movie. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, a classic. Meryl Streep. Is that a Meryl Streep? Yeah, it's a classic yeah. chick flick. But mm. in the very end, she gives away her clothing. She gives away everything. And, and you can see her walking up and she's she's been transformed. She no longer needs Meryl Streep. And, and now she's going back to help others, you know. And um, so that's. But I said, if you now take that process and now let's boil it down to its essentials. The entire hero's journey is a transformational journey from selfishness to selflessness. And the reason why we identify with all these heroes, you know, um, whether they're science fiction or whether they're, you know, true to life, is they're all being transformed from selfish people into selfless people. And that tells me if we're willing to spend billions of dollars to watch other people be transformed, that tells me that's what we really want. Mm -hmm. We want to be transformed from selfish to selfless people, but you can't have it happen by watching a movie anywhere, any more than you can pay somebody to work out for you and get in shape. Um, and, and I think that's the inspiration kind of, for you to do it, right? We we want to be called to the adventure. We want, and so there are people out there listening who don't want the trials and tribulations and the struggles. They want it easy. Well, it doesn't it doesn't happen without the the dragon in front of you. And so exactly. if a dragon does a, approach you, you should be thankful because that is there to bring out the best in you. Boy, and the best in you Mike, is selfishness. Mike, Mike. You're fabulous. This is you're incredible. Yes, exactly. And I, I point out in the book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, um, and believe me, we're going to get to business here in a minute, how all this applies to business. But um, because I built a couple of uh, very successful software companies using this, all this stuff. But yes, what, you know, what everybody wants to can pretend this is where you get into all this it's all relative and everybody's got their own path and every time i dig down into somebody everybody's got their own damn path their path skips the desert <laughs> they want to have their own path because they can define it the way they want to define it which means i don't have to face the dragon i don't have to go into the desert 
I don't have to go be trained. I don't have to sacrifice. I don't have to do all the things in the desert. And I pointed out in the book, I said, you know, what is the scariest part? And by the way, I lived this, so I know it. What is the scariest part of the desert? I said, let's imagine that you're a minor league baseball player. Uh, let's, you know, let's call you double A baseball player. And you're pushing 26, 27, 28 years old. And you're in the desert. I said, what's the hardest part about the, you haven't made the majors yet. So you're in the desert, right? What's the hardest part of this? It's not the bus drives. It's not the cheap food. It's not sleeping in motel rooms, sharing motel rooms with some other guy. It's not uh, some coach screaming at you. That stuff is fine. It's when you're laying in bed at night, thinking about your girlfriend telling you, if you were going to make it, you'd have made it by now. Mm. This is an ego trip you're on. Why, do you, why don't you give up? Why don't you surrender? Why don't you, you know, my, my father will give you a great job at the factory. You know, we can get married and live happily ever after. Why do you keep doing this? Why are you doing it? And you're laying there and you're wondering, maybe she's right. Maybe she's right. How do I know? How do I know for sure that, you know, on the other hand, if I give up, how do I know that I'm not, you know, I'm not, I could be called up next week, you know? And this is the agony of being in, in the desert. Because you, you know, because it gets really, really hard at times and you want to give up. Right. With no vision, you will perish. I believe that's you part know, of the Bible too, you know, right? A man without vision will perish or people without uh, vision. And so absolutely. what you're saying is that if you don't have a vision, a clear, distinct target, self-doubt will creep in and the voices will start to sway you off your path. And that's the and, worst feeling. Well, I would, I would go, I would take you one, uh, one um, step further than that. It's not just, uh, you know, even if you're, even if you're, and I was very, very committed to my vision, but even then the voices hound you and they hound you anyway. And these, you know, in, in, you know, who knows, but, you know, depending on your religious perspective, are these, te are these, temp these temptations from outside of you or they're just the temptations from inside of you, you know, but, uh, you know, it's like you look around and you say, why am I making it so hard on myself? Everybody else looks like they're getting on with their lives. And meanwhile, I'm doing all this, this, this stuff that nobody else seems to be bothered. Why, you know, you know, why me? Why do I got to do, you know, there's all this kind of stuff. And, and, and this is the dragon, by the way, this mm -hmm. is the dragon Yes, fighting this stuff because you know what, Mike, to throw it even to another, to make it even more complex. There are times to walk away. There are times to look yes. in the mirror. There are times to look in the mirror and say you're 34 years old and you're playing single A ball and you and you aren't going to make the majors. Yeah. Um. So uh, so this is what makes the complexity and of course you got to step a step back. This is what makes those movies so much fun to watch. We yeah, watch right. these other people go through all this stuff. These Rocky movies. Should I quit? You know? Do I have what it takes? How do I know? You know? Uh, you know? We, this is you know this is uh um. You know, I always relate to the Rocky, the first Rocky movie, one of my favorite scenes in that is when he's trying to express to the bartender, all I've ever wanted was a shot. I just wanted a sh my shot. Oh, you really, he keeps talking, he keeps saying a shot. And finally he walks away and the bartender looks after him and says, you want a shot? And he pours himself a shot of whiskey. There's your shot. <laughs> There's a shot, yeah. Because you're, you're living in a world of bartenders. And you're trying to do something with your life, and nobody seems to understand that everybody's saying, you know, what the hell are you doing? I, and I, I, I had yeah. to live that. So I want to move along to the next concept, and that is that well, the most important thing in business and in life is motivation. 
And I spent a lot, many years as a salesman and then later as a sales manager and a vice president of sales and finally a CEO. And the primary thing was, is if I can motivate, I got to get motivate people. And you have to understand even psychology, what is motiv- motivation? I remember I asked a CEO one time, I mean, he was, his company was about a $500 million company. And I said, this story is in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And I said, what, what's your job description? What do you do? And he said, well, if you follow me around, you'd think I do a lot of things. But he said, I only have one job. I build passion. Oh, he said, what a phrase. He said, he said, you read all the time. He said, you think talent is in short supply? Talent is not in short supply. Passion is in short supply. He said, you read all the time about some woman picking a car up off her child and some 80-pound woman. Why? Because she cares that much. She said, um, he said, my job is to... Uh, is to is to get put passion in place. He said, once that happens, my job becomes making sure everybody takes enough vacation and staying the hell out of the way. So, and I saw that again. We built two companies, and I tell the whole story in Business Secrets of the Travis Monks about how we started with twenty five hundred dollar investments, all the money we ever put into our company. Um, we started with a business plan. I was four of us. My partner said, "Our business plan is we're smart guys. We'll figure out something to do." I like his philosophy. And that was it. That was all we knew we were going to be doing. Um, and um, and we started a business like that. Without, and we said, we're not going to put another dime in this business. We're not going to borrow any money. We're not going to put any more of our own money into it. If we can't make 2500 is what it costs for one month's rent and one month's phones, et cetera. He said, we can't make $2,500 the first month. Robin old ladies are doing something. We're going to, we'll close this business down rather than, just string it along by putting money back into it. And we ended up over the next seven years building it up into two multi-million dollar companies um, on eternally generated cash with no influx, no borrowed money, no investors. And we ended up selling the companies to um, an Israeli company, which then a few years later, that our combined companies were flipped to BMC Software down in Texas for 150 million in cash. Mm-hmm. So I tell the whole story about how this all, how we how we did all this using the monks uh, philosophy and all the things that I learned from the monks and and before that through my spiritual stuff. And what did I find out about what do people really want in life? What we really want in life is this transformational transformation. Everything in life is longing for transformation. Every acorn wants to be transformed into an oak. Every caterpillar is longing to be transformed into a butterfly. Um, but there's three kinds of transformation. So people are the same way. We're longing for transformation. What are the three forms of transformation? When a thirsty man drinks, he transforms his condition. When a poor man hits the lottery, he transforms his circumstances. But when Mr. Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning, an utterly new man, or all these other guys and all these other heroes that we were just talking about from movies, they have experienced a transformation of being. And you're a completely new person. Um, It's a transformation of who you fundamentally are. And I said, the problem with life is that too many of us mistake. We try to, uh, we have a hole in our soul and we try to fill it with transformations of condition, you know, smoking cigarettes, drinking drugs, sex, those are transformations of condition, and there's nothing evil about them except if you start using um, 
if you start trying to fill that hole in your soul over, go overboard with donuts, you'll just get fat. Um, then you move up the scale and you try to do it with a, a transformation of, of circumstances. That's getting wealthy, getting powerful, getting famous. I said, um, those don't, uh, you know, they, they're fine as long as you're using them properly. But if you start thinking this is the answer, you know, the next thing you know, talking about actors, and luckily Michael Keaton has avoided this, so many of them self-destruct because they're under the impression that if I can force you through power and fame to think of me in a different way, that will make me a different person. But they, deep down inside, they know that they're still the same SOB they were before they got famous. Mm -hmm. So they end up feeling like a fraud because they've got all these people treating them. Imposter syndrome. That's right. Imposter syndrome. You're great talking to. Yep. Exactly. So the imposter syndrome burns them up. Same with people that are trying to, you know, they're they're trying to uh, find selflessness through distractions and drugs and alcohol and stuff. That's what they're really trying to do. Forget themselves. And that's why we say, you know, forget your troubles by drinking. No, you're not trying to forget your troubles. Your troubles are your selfishness. So you're trying to, you know, medicate yourself so you don't have to think about all the, about yourself. So we're really all longing for this transformation of being that is going to make us into a, a selfless person. Wow. And it sounds like there has to be a death and a rebirth. And it's Absolutely. so symbolic in, like you said, the matrix where you have to die or a piece of you has to die, right? <clears throat> Death is a part of birth. And so what did uh, Jesus say that, you know, you have to, you have to die by living while living. You have to, you, you know, you have to pick up your cross, you know, I mean, um, you know, and in the, in the deepest, um, and I've spent my life um, on a spiritual path and studied all different religions. And, and the, in my third, third book, which we talked about last time, one man's quest for spiritual enlightenment, not less than everything is called one man's quest for the fundamental, you know, there is a concept in every, every religion has a mystical tradition, you know, yoga for, for, um, for Hinduism, um, and, uh, Zen for Buddhism and, uh, um, Christian mysticism for Christianity. They all have a, you know, Sufism for Islam and every single one of them are built around the same thing. In order to truly experience God as he really is, you have to die first, which they mean the ego. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a very scary process to go through because the ego is all you really know, and you are quote unquote identified with that ego. And when the, the ego does start to die, you feel like you're dying. So is the ego a part of just our human nature simply because of our yes. survival mechanism. So it's a- there abs- for a reason, but abs- it only gets you so far. Absolutely. God, it's fun talking to you. Um, I, you're absolutely right. You know, in, in, in a Jungian psychology, you start uh, the, the baby in the womb um, or some people even say before the womb has no sense of self. It's completely identified with the universe. There's no dividing line between me outside and inside or anything like that. It's one with everything. And then even later, the baby is one with the mother. Um, But at some point in time, the baby starts to develop its own sense of individuality and the ego starts to develop. Um, It it leaves the mother, starts to identify with the father and starts developing this thing called an ego. Now, according to Jungian, this is the true, uh, this is the uh, parable of the Garden of Eden. This is how we leave the Garden. I was just of about Eden. to say Eden, right? Here's the apple. Don't listen to anybody. Don't listen to God. This is way better. This is ta- this tastes better. This is better you, for you. You, you know, this is all about me. 
Now, interestingly, you know, I was reading this uh, psychology said, so the answer becomes, well, if you had a different way of raising kids and blah, 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 could you spare them this, 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 this painful separate? He said, no, this is a necessary, this is part of the necessary. So what happens is the ego development, the individuality is an important stage, but most people never go beyond it. And that's why it becomes very painful because you become, you become alienated. You're, you're alienated. And as Ken Wilber said, there's two two things to do. It's very uncomfortable. Individuality is very, it's self-consciousness. It's very uncomfortable. It's alienation. Um, you know, and there's two ways that people try to deal with this. And uh, he said one way <clears throat> is to go backwards. And that way, way is to anesthetize yourself, use alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever, to go back to a more primitive, you know, animal more animal type um or you know nature religions go back to where you try to just become one with the with the forest and the trees somehow he said that always fails because what we're being invited to do is the transformation to another stage of consciousness a higher stage of consciousness which they call cosmic consciousness enlightenment satori nirvana every religion's got this state of a higher state that you get transformed into and that's where you find what you started with. That's where you find that ultimate peace. Um, but getting back to business secrets of the Trappist monks, I really go into it by showing each chapter in the book starts with one of the monks' virtues like faith and show, starts showing how I used it, how they use it in their business, and then how I use it in my business. But to cut to the chase, what I'm, the point that I'm making is that we think that um selfishness is necessary for business when actually it is not it's a counter just like in everything else it's counterproductive mm -hmm. um it's like you started by saying peace uh, um I'm, I'm maybe paraphrasing here unfairly but a man stops that, where he find finds peace not where right. he finds power or right. success or money but, pe but peace is not the goal peace is the byproduct of I reaching the goal yeah. okay there you go and, and what I always, what I say in business is that money, profits, all the things that people think they want, and they think that selfishness is going to get them, are actually the byproducts of being selfless. What I keep saying over and over again in business secrets is the more successfully you forget your selfish motivations, the more successful you become. Now, let me give you some examples. I come up in sales. I was I was a very good salesman. I was good enough that I was on the cover of Selling Magazine one time as a selling hero. Um, and what I learned is that every great salesman has to forget about his product, forget about the commissions, forget about his quota. And instead, he has to selflessly focus on helping his customer. And the more successfully he selfishly unselfishly focuses on helping his customer, the more sales he makes, the easier it is to make his quota, and the more money he makes. It's the byproduct, the trailing indicator. Let's talk about leadership. Most people want leaders. They want to be leaders for selfish reasons. They think, you know, I want to be a leader so I get promoted faster and I'll get more money and my chicks will dig me or whatever the heck. But the fact of the matter is the task of a leader, your job as a leader is not to get yourself promoted. Your job as a leader is to get other people promoted. And if you lay in bed at night agonizing over, how am I going to get Mike promoted? How do I get Mike promoted? You, as a trailing indicator, 
will be promoted faster yourself. Because the more successful your people become, the more successful you become, therefore you get promoted faster. But you have to forget. And the same thing even with a corporation. The more successfully the corporation forgets about profits and instead focuses on achieving its mission of helping its customers and some, providing customers with something that is going to help them, the, the, the profits take care of themselves. Mm. These are all the trailing indicators. These are all the, uh, the, the byproducts. And there's many other examples like that. And, and so, how do I make others look better? And and if you can do that, it's so hard to do it in the beginning. But the more you focus on it, it becomes second nature. You do it everywhere. And I just watched, and it just kind of ties in with what you just said. I just watched the dating coach who she's a female dating coach that helps women date men. And one of the pieces of advice that she put out there on social media was, in order for you to get a good man make him look better forget about all your needs everything but just make him look better it's it's directly in alignment with what you just said and i guarantee it goes vice versa right uh, absolutely you know person. i wrote i wrote you know one of the things i also do is write for i don't know i haven't done it for a couple of years now but i used to write for forbes as a, a leadership contributor um and i used to turn on all these articles for forbes um and that opportunity came out of the fact they published my article that went viral but what i wrote an article about um if you want to be a uh, if you want to get ahead you got to be if you want to be a great leader you have to first learn how to be a great follower and i said is a great one of the things a great follower has to be fanatically committed how can i make my boss look good my job is to make my boss look good you know, and I get into all these other things. You never run your, you know, you, you never go into a meeting with your boss where you decide that, you know, something, you're going to have to do something unpleasant. And then you go out to your own people and you say, yeah, that, you know, we're going to have to do this, but the boss is making me do it. Um, you know, all these ways in which um, you, you never undermine your boss. If you if you can't work for somebody, then then be the, be a man about it. Go get another job. But if you ever come to the point where you can't, where you don't have confidence and you can't feel like you can really, you know, pump this guy up, you know, then, uh, you know, so I, I wrote this whole like 17 different things. Here's, here's what you need to do to be a great follower. And I pointed out, by the way, that we're all, um, it's, I said, one of my greatest mentors that I had, who was a fabulous salesman himself, um, told me, he said, Augie, remember one thing, everybody got a boss. He said, the, the director reports to the vice president. The vice president reports to the president. The president reports to the CEO. The CEO reports to the chairman of the board. And the chairman of the board reports to his wife. Everybody, <laughs> everybody got a boss. And I point out that we go through, in a, in a day, we go through, we can be the, uh, the leader or the follower many different ways in a single day. So we have to be absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'll tell you a quick story is uh, my very first sales job I ever had was up in Boston is uh, selling copy machines for 3M business products. And um, the third month that, that I was there, it was I won the number, I was number one salesman in whole New England. So they, what they did, they bring all the salesmen for all the other offices in and all the managers and the vice president, and they have a big poobah thing. And they gave me a, a trophy, you know, it was funny because it was a salesman with a holding a, a briefcase, you know, um, and and then speech, speech, speech. They got up there, you know. I had to give a speech. I was 22 years old, and uh, I got up there and I said, "Listen, I said, there's no way I could have done this without the help of my 
manager, Kevin Morardi. I said, I owe, I owe so much to Kevin. And that was just heartfelt. It was just the truth. It was, it was just the truth. And all of a sudden, everybody, all these managers and executives start screaming, no, 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 this is your day. He gets plenty of credit. You know, this is, no, no, no. And I can see how much they loved me because of what I just did. Mm. Even though they were complaining, like, as if, you know, oh, screw Moriarty. You know, they were all friends. Screw Moriarty. You know, I can see. And I remember that. Share credit. Most people hog credit. Yeah. Give it away. Share it like crazy, selflessly. But like you said, Mike, what has to happen, you know, Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not a choice. It's a habit. We must become selfless. Yeah, you might start off because you have to say, well, I was reading that, listening to that darn Mike's um, podcast, and so I guess I got to share credit. So I'll do it. I don't like it, but I'll do it. You might have to start doing it that way. And the more you do it and the more the feedback comes back and the more you realize, you know, then it becomes second nature and selflessness becomes that second, second nature. Um, it's the art of know. reciprocity too. You made me think of it's the follower's job to support and make the leader look better. But if the leader has the exact same philosophy, it cycles back. And therefore it's the leader's job to create other leaders and therefore support them as they grow. So it is like a, a, a cyclical program that's happening within the organization. And it even makes me think of something that I just learned about with dopamine, right? Dopamine and internal dopamine in your brain creates testosterone and testosterone used properly to, you know, go through pain and adversity a lot easier. If you have testosterone actually produces dopamine. dopamine. And so everything is cyclical, cyclical, all good things. And the so virtuous cycle, the, oh. the virtuous, the virtuous cycle, you know? Um, and, uh, and the last chapter of my book, um, my, uh, my latest book business, um, not less than everything. I talk about how, um, I had this tremendous spiritual experience in 1998 after a lot of of hell and anguish that I went through in, in you know in the desert, um, I had this incredible spiritual. I said, ever since then, it's as if I've I'm in a magical slipstream. Everything just happens. I mean, a guy walked in not too long after this happened. A guy walked in from Israel, um, and because he was into Russia, and I would. I was a Russian history major, which everybody at Pitt said, what the hell are you doing studying Russian history? Well, I ended up becoming rich because of it, because he bought my company. Um, he just, he wasn't supposed to, he just did. And uh, and then the next thing you know, um, my colleague, everybody said, why are you working with these college students all the time? You're not on the faculty. You don't get paid. There's no, there's no, you know, compensation. These kids are a bunch of um, spoiled brats. They hardly, they basically don't show up for class. They don't get credit for it. So it was all volunteer. And I kept doing it year after year. And you're also trying to run two companies, and you're doing this year after year after year. Well, first things that happened was that when I went, when I broke my ankle was when I started into my dark night of the soul in a skydiving accident, which, by the way, I talk about happy accidents a lot in the book, that when you're living a selfless life, things start to, you want to call it grace? We want to call it accidents. Happy accidents just start to happen. And I said the happiest accident was my college. It was my college students that took me skydiving. And I broke my ankle and I went into this plunged into this dark night, which was the absolute dragon I had to face, which I had been trying not to face, even though I'd been on spirit all these lives. So I was forced to face it because, but I owe that to the college students. And then the next thing you know, I get a call from one of my college students saying I'm at Mepkin Abbey 
That's he introduced me to my to the to the monks. And then a few years later, my college students taught me into reading, watching a uh, uh, to entering a contest, and I win a hundred thousand dollars, which leads me to get on uh, Forbes uh, into Forbes and everything else I did. And then in two thousand nine, Mike, I get a telephone call from a couple of my other college students, and they said we are in New York starting our own business, and we need your help. And uh, so I drove, I flew up to New York and I go to see them and they said, we need your help in sales. We're just starting out. They were in a little loft right off of Columbus Circle. Unfortunately, I said, sure, I'll help you out. And I, she said, well, we can't pay you. We don't have any money. And I said, oh, I'll just give you some stock. So they gave me like 200,000 shares of stock. I worked three months and I go home and I thought, oh, well, you know, I did my good deed. You know, they're not going to ever, you know. Three uh, 2013, uh, they go public for 1.2 billion. The stock goes to 28 dollars a share. <laughs> oh, no, so, so who was the idiot helping those college students for free for all those years? Um, the you know, but you have to get to the point, and this is the hardest thing. This is the hardest thing you have to learn in the desert and facing the dragon and and all the um, the hard work that you have to put in because it comes from 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 hard work. You have to learn how to give without any hope of it's going to come back to you. Mm. You you know the, the hardest thing to get rid of is if you're really trying to practice selflessness. Is you walk the little old lady across the street and then you say, "Hmm, Turex is happy. I better go buy a lottery ticket because I helped her and now I'm going to I'll win the lottery." No, that can't even cross your mind. You're not sitting there trying to think, how can I get Mike promoted? Because the quicker I get him promoted, the quicker I'll get promoted. You got to, you know, and this is not all that strange. How many, I've never been a parent, um, but, uh, you know, uh, but I had seven younger siblings. How many parents have I heard say that they get more pleasure while you're from Pittsburgh, you know Kennywood Park, right? Mm-hmm. So this that's an amusement park in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, and I remember one of my good friends from Pittsburgh telling me, he says, you know, Augie, I got far more pleasure out of taking my kids to Kennywood than I ever got out of it myself. Every parent knows what it means to get more pleasure out of giving to their children than they ever could get by getting. Wow. That when their kid wins an award at school, it means so much more than when they won an award at school. So what we're really talking about is taking that same philosophy and spreading it out over every area of your life so that you learn to be a giver and you really, the pleasure comes in just the giving and the selflessness. I get Um, so much more enjoyment when my team makes a sale than whenever I make a sale, right? There is something that happens that says, you know, wow, I see them win. And I don't know what it is, but you're right. I, I don't know that what it's like with a kid because I don't have any children, but just having someone else around you that you've influenced in some degree win and you're somewhat responsible for that makes it way better than if you just did it on your own. It's right. truly incredible. Right. Absolutely. You know, I tell this story, you know, uh, this is one of my favorite stories in my whole business career is that I came into a company up in DC called data broadcasting. It doesn't matter, but um, I was there as a consultant. And one day the CEO came in and he said, I want you to take over as vice president of sales. He said, um, he says, we're not, it's not getting it. The, the guy that we got now is not getting it done. So I'm going to get rid of him. Uh, and uh, I'm going to, 
uh, put you in an interesting enough. I said, I can only work three days a week. And why? Because I was working with college students two nights a week in, in Raleigh and I couldn't be in DC. Uh, and he's fine. I'll let you work three days a week. Cause I think I'll get more out of you. And what I did in order to shake everything up from the very beginning to let them know there was a new sheriff in town is, um, is one of the very first things I did is I said, we're going to have a contest. And I came in wearing a big cowboy hat. And I said, we're, I said, I'm going to put this hat out there in the middle, um, upside down. I said, and we're going to have it play a game and it's going to be called top gun. If you just, if you put that hat on, whoever puts that hat on is telling every, there was like 25 salesmen is saying, I am the top guy. I'm the best guy. I'm the best salesman in this office. He said, and what you're going to do then is you're going to walk around to every other person and you're going to say, listen, I'm the top guy. Don't draw on me. Don't try to draw on me because, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat you. I said, uh, Every uh, every person is going to have the opportunity to either challenge you or slink away and not challenge you. I said, if you beat everybody, you're going to get $1,000. Anybody who beats you will get $100. So I sat through that. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. I threw that hat and I was sweating bullets, Mike. What if nobody takes the hat? What if nobody wants to play the game? What am I, Then what am I going to do? Well, anyway, the tension was you could cut it with a knife. All of a sudden, this guy, Scott grabs the net, puts it on. Blew my mind. One of the worst salesmen in the office. You know, on top of that, I'd gotten to know him as being there as a consultant. He wasn't that bright. He wasn't the smartest, uh, sharpest knife in the office. But he put the hat on. And he goes around to everybody. Everybody challenges. So he's got, and uh, and what we, and the way we sold was um, we get, would run commercials and the, um, and then the, the phones would ring and then they would try to close people on the phone for the products that we were selling. And, and I came and he went crazy. And I went in like the second day of the contest. It was a one week contest and the uh, commercial would ran on TV. So when the tertiary ran, they knew that the phone would start ringing in a, in a minute or so after that. And there was a woman who, who, who hit the buttons to send the calls. And this guy, Scott jumps on his feet and he screams at the woman, give me a call for God's sake, give me a call. You know, and then he sees me standing there next to him, and he says, "Yeah, that look in your eye." My wife says, that "I've got that look in my," you know, and he ended up blowing everybody away. And not only did he blow everybody away, Mike, and win the contest, but every week after that, he was number one or number two. Couldn't stop the guy. So, By the way, what, there is a great symbolism that he just expressed there. It's number one, taking ownership of a new identity. Yeah. And then well, listen that to what new identity listen. required a new hat that you wore, the the standards that you required. The transformation. He I I one day I one day I couldn't help it, you know, because again, you know, he uh, he was such a surprise to me. Scott Wilkes was his name. Last name was Wilkes, not that it matters. But I said, I said, I, I tapped him on the shoulder one day. I said, Scott, I said, you were always like the crappiest salesman on the sales force. I said, now you're number one or number two every week, you know, knocking down everything. He said, I said, what's the answer? And I remember he was sitting down. I was standing up. He looked up and he said, Augie, once you know what it feels like to be your best, you never want to go back. And about three or four years later, I get an email from him. He was out in California making a half a million dollars a year. Uh, married, you know, just killing it. And to me, to give people to work with, like you said, to successfully see people get a taste of that, 
to see that transformation happen, to build an organization of people like that, you know, people couldn't understand my, you know, we built this company that I talked about on, on 2,500 bucks. And it was, we were a sales organization and we would sell, we started out selling other people's products. And within three months, two or two months or so, my vice president um, uh, of sales, my partner, we would laugh about it because we'd always get a telephone call within about six weeks or two months or something from the vice president from the company that we were, we were repping. And he'd say, Hey, your, you, your sales force is now not killing mine two to one. Could you please send me your pitch? And we would laugh out loud because it happened again and again. And we'd say, it's not in the pitch. It's not, it's in the intensity behind the pitch. It's the fact that our guys care more than your guys care, you know, and that's a culture. And I kept saying, what do the Trappist monks have when it all comes down to what they have? They call it community. We can call it culture. You know, I found out that, that, you know, what does, you know, this is a truism. What do um, soldiers do? They, they sacrifice not for them, for the company, the flag, for each other. Mm-hmm. When you build that esprit de corps in a sales force, for example, where nobody wants to be the weak link, nobody wants to let anybody, the other guys down. You know, that's what you, that's when you get peak performance, you know, um, where everybody is, everybody's a team and everybody cares about each other and nobody wants to let everybody down. So the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with here, Mike, is I also talk, I have a chapter in business secrets of the Trappist monks dedicated to what I call transformational organizations. And I said, what you need <clears throat> to build a transformation is you need a high overarchy, high overarching mission worthy of being selflessly served. And you need a, uh, uh, a path, uh, a way, a, a way for people to be transformed. And um, I said, well, I remember I said, my first experience when I, when I used to go to Microsoft a lot back in the early nineties, I used to be out there. We did a lot of business with them and I'd be out there a lot. And um, one time and I'd, I'd always meet these young people and they were always sleeping under their beds. They were always dying for Microsoft. They were always Microsoft, Microsoft, Microsoft. So I finally said to one guy, I said to him, what's the secret? What, you know, what, what, what is it? He said, goat rodeos. I said, what the hell is a goat rodeo? He said, I'll tell you what a goat rodeo is. He said, it's, it's eight o'clock on Friday night and you get a call from Bill Gates and he tells you he's going to be in Tokyo on Monday morning and he wants to demo, he wants to demo your product to an international audience. He said, and you, your product's only half done and it's buggy as hell, but somehow you and your team work all night and all day, all weekend. And just 10 minutes before he goes out there, he said, you get him the bits and he goes out there and he knocks them dead. He said, that's one goat rodeo. And when you've done three or four goat rodeos, man, you've made your bones at Microsoft. Never heard that. You've made your bones at Microsoft. And so you've got to build these goat rodeo attitude into your company. And I said, the greatest example, look at the Marines. I said, you come into the Marine Corps, you know, you have a selfless service to serve the country, to serve your fellow Marines. That's what it's all service. 
number two, they have a, me- a method for, for you to become transformed. It's called boot camp. So you come in as a raw recruit. You're not even called a Marine. It's recruit Turex here. Yes, sir. Recruit Turex. You're a recruit. You can't call yourself a Marine. And you go through this 12-week hell, the dragon. You go into the desert yes. and you go through this 12-week, you know, and many a time you feel like you've died and, you know, and you hate your drill sergeant and everything. Um, and then you come through the other side and you become a Marine. And then you then these guys spend the rest of their lives. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Their new identity. It's that new they're hat. That new hat. And they're in a, and they're in a, Alcoholics Anonymous is another one. I said, people don't um uh you know, you're not uh cured of alcoholism, which you're tra- you're transformed from an alcoholic into a recovering alcoholic by means of the 12 step program. And what's the high overarching mission? What is the what is the way in which it's it's counterintuitive, but what is the way that Alcoholics Anonymous says to keep sober? Help somebody else to stay sober. Keep them accountable. Help them help them stay sober. The more you get forget your own alcoholism and concentrate on helping somebody else who's an alcoholic, the easier it is for you to stay sober. So that's a that's a transformation, and so you go through this twelve step program, you know, and 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 all of these programs, whether it's the Marine Corps or AA, and I mentioned a few more in my book, all have these same hero's journey functions to them. And so I'm here to tell you know I don't have to tell you I don't believe Mike you and I are on the same page on this, but anybody else that's listening or watching today, you can't. Avoid the desert. You cannot avoid paying your dues. You can't avoid the goat rodeos. You can't avoid the trials and tribulations, the dorm and drong, the storm and stress. In matter of fact, if you want this wonderful experience, this transformative experience, you got to go looking for this. Mm. You go looking for the, you know, I, I, you know, I, I have a personal trainer. Um, I love the guy. I mean, he's a son of a bitch. I mean, I mean, we just did legs this morning. You know, you know what he did to me this morning too. You know, this is typical of him too. He said to me, "You got." I go to the stretch zone to get stretched after afterwards. You know, and he said, "You got stretched today?" And I said, "No, that's Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays." He said, "Huh? All right." I said, "I know why you asked that." I said, "Why?" He says, "Because you're going to give me extra time today." He says, yeah, something like that. It's sort of a brick gave me 20 minutes of extra. It tortured me for 20. It was an hour and 20 minutes rather than a regular hour. You know, um, yeah, I could find a lot of trainers that were a lot easier than him. Mm-hmm. His whole gym, he's got his own gym. And it's, you know, um, winners train, losers complain. Shut up. Nobody cares. That's his whole motto. And I've been working with him for 12 years. And uh, and I feel great because I'm willing to pay the price. You got to be willing to pay the price. And if anybody comes up with a you know eat anything you want and still lose weight approach to all this stuff, whether it's spirituality, which is what it is, just say your mantra twice a week. Oh, just go to your little yoga class on Fridays. Just you know, just say the you know this little you know. No, you're being conned. Right, discipline. Freedom. And there's that great book about that, that if you really want to obtain freedom, you have to have discipline. You need to have a regimen. You need habits. 
And there's another great quote that I've seen. If you want to be a loser, do everything that you feel like and don't do anything that you don't feel like, right? So like you will stay mediocre. You will not get anywhere. You're going to eat whatever you want. You're going to get fat. You're going to be lazy. It's all of that looking for the dragon and not running from it. And to quote Joseph Campbell, the cave you fear holds the treasure you seek. Absolutely. So run towards that damn cave. Absolutely. I, I, I take it even once. I define the cave even more specifically. You have to develop a habit of turning into the fear rather than turning away from the fear. It's a muscle. There's no doubt. It's a, it's a turn into, if you're afraid to give public speaking, give public speeches. If you're, if you're afraid of something, that's the thing you need to do. And, um, and, you know, I remember my old Zen teacher, which my, my latest book, uh, not less than everything has a lot in the first half about my crazy West Virginia hillbilly Zen master from, from Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, you know, and he used to, uh, he says, you have to develop the ability to force yourself. He said, no, you know, he said, everybody wants to be constantly inspired. He said, that's impossible. And we want to work spiritually when, like, when we feel like it. He said, you've got to be absolutely, um, you got to be able to force yourself. And later on in my book, I quote him again, because he said, he said, you have to have self-discipline. If you don't master yourself, you will always live with shame. Mm. And we have so many people in our culture now who are against shame, you know, and they're, because they're pretending that if they just pretend they're not ashamed of the way they're living, they won't be ashamed, you know? And, and, and so it's just a, a game to try and, well, no, if you don't control yourself, you always, but I'm going to add two more things to your little formula, which is a great formula, Mike. You need a teacher. You need a mentor. You know, they say that the doctor who treats himself has a fool for a patient. The lawyer who defends himself has a fool for a client. The man who is his own guru has a fool for a follower. Right. You need a teacher. We don't have any problem going to doctors, to go into shrinks, to go into personal trainers, go into nutritionists. But damn it, the most important part of your life is your spiritual life. You're going to do that all yourself. So you need that. Second thing is community. Third thing, community. Fourth thing, community. You need a community of fellow seekers that can give keep you give you honest feedback. They can tell you you're getting a little bit crazy this way. You know, you're you're overdoing this. You need you need you need a community of people. And look at it, look at it. Is it easier? I ask you, Mike, rhetorically, because I know what answer you're going to give. Is it easier to go to the gym by yourself, or is it easier when you have a workout buddy? <laughs> When, when somebody is holding you accountable and when the universe, you could even put it that way, when the universe holds you accountable. Right. Really and if you're, fr- and if you don't want to be the guy, you know, if you don't want to disappoint your friend, because the fact of the matter is most of us are, will do for other people what we won't do for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so you can use that to work with your own, to your own advantage. So, um, my only, you know, winding up business secrets of the trap is monks, what we're talking about here, Mike, I hate, hate to even use the word disappointment because the book has been so much more successful than I ever dreamed it could possibly be. But the only slight, you know, you know, I don't complain, but sometimes I, still, I can't complain. Sometimes I still, is that my last in the last chapter of the book, I scream 
is almost by putting it all in capital letters. I didn't do that, but I could have, where I'm saying, reading this book and a million like them will not do you a bit of good unless you take action. And you will only take, you need a community. You need to work in a group setting. You need, even if it's just some friends to get together on Friday nights or or whatever, which is what I used to do. We I used to have 40 people come to my house on Friday nights. And we would work together on stuff. Sometimes it was just easy stuff like, or easy stuff to do, like New Year's resolutions. And we'd hold each other accountable to do them, you know? Um, But so in all the years that I've, since the book has been out, I keep waiting for somebody to call me up and say, hey, I've started a community or I'm thinking about starting a community. Can you give me some pointers or, um, you know, no. Uh, You know, there's a wonderful story that I tell about Warren Buffett. his biographer, this woman who wrote his biography, said everybody thinks that uh, Buffett can, uh, gives his success to his 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 Wharton Business School and his mentor uh, Graham uh, Benjamin Graham. Um, he said, but if you ask uh, Buffett what he really credits for his success, he said he calls it the uh, Andrew Carnegie, the um, Dale Carnegie, the Dale Carnegie course. He said, but the difference between Warren, he said, and other people is most people read Dale Carnegie's book and they say, yeah, this is really cool. And then they put it up on the shelf and forget about it. He said, not Warren. He worked the system and worked the system and worked it. He said, and then sometimes he'd forget it for a while. He'd come back and work it again and work it again and work it again. What I want people to do, God bless, for their own sake, not for my sake, with Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, is work the system that I outlined there. And the first thing you need to do is get teachers, get get fellow students, and and work it. Um, one of the nicest things about you know I met my, my I got together with Michael Keaton a couple of years ago out in California, and um, one of the first things I said to him I said Mike I said I was down at the monastery, and one of the monks said you showed up at the monastery, and he said yeah he said I love your book he said I he said I had to share you know, so you. All he did was very, very humbly. He showed up. Uh, suppose the monks told me he showed up at like seven o'clock in the morning and and, and at the guest center and introduced introduced himself as a friend of August Augie Turax. That's all he said about himself. And he spent a day there um, uh, with the monks. But um, you got to work. You got to work the system, and it's so hard um, to do because so much of what we're talking about today, Mike. I'm sure you'll agree with me. Is 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 Countercultural. The flow of what everybody else around you is doing is going with the flow. My right. old Zen teacher said, You go with the flow if you want, because people used to oh, go with the flow, go with the flow. He said, You go with the flow if you want, but I've fo- I followed up a few flows in my day, and they all end up in the same place the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's so well said. Yeah, that's what the average person around you is doing. And do exactly following their and footsteps. It, and if you, and if you, are hanging around. If somebody is, is the drum beat is boom, boom, boom. You will eventually start boom. You, you, it's so hard to resist it. Yep. I mean, if you go into the, if you end up going to prison for 20 years or for false charges, um, and you're a really wonderful person, you know, you're going to, it's, it's highly much more likely that you're going to come out a criminal than that. You're going to convert all them <laughs> into being a nice guy. Exactly. Because we we are what we hang out with. That's yeah, what our parents told us, you know. Don't be you careful who you hang out with. And when you're hanging out with people that don't care about anything but um but money and 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 power and you know and 
getting, excuse me, getting laid, then if you're trying to do something different with your life, you're flow, you're swimming desperately against the tide and you need the help of teachers and other people. So that's what I'd leave you with. Great, man. I'm going to put you in touch with one of my clients. You and him are going to have an amazing conversation. Uh, he's looking for a guest and uh, you guys will talk for days about the exact same stuff. You remind me so much of him. So anyways, uh, August Turok, you have a website out there, guys. I'm sure you got a lot of value from him. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Go listen to episode 79. He goes into great detail there. But the website, augustturak.org, it looks like you have a foundation. So uh, yep. I guess, do you, do you raise money through this? Or is this something that you just do on your own time? I, Well, I, pretty much I do everything by my, on my own. Uh, all, of, um, all of the money that I take in through the sale of books, my lectures, consulting, anything that I do, I consider my spiritual work, uh, goes into my foundation. And um, our the mission of the foundation is to help people uh, find higher meaning and purpose. Or that's in a world that so many people seem to find bereft of meaning and purpose. And um, you know, depression is the number one disease in the Western civilization today. Forty percent of incoming freshmen at colleges are on antidepressants, and it's because they lack a sense of higher meaning and purpose. Religion has declined, and we haven't we haven't substituted anything else for it. Um, you know, wow. except maybe political activism, which is a <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, uh, it's it's God's going away from the school and from the family, right? right? And it's getting replaced with something, and that something is not good. Exactly, exactly. So, guys, check out his and- books for sure on Amazon. Like you said, uh, a portion of it goes to the foundation, or all proceeds. All of it. All of it. All I don't proceeds take, go to I this foundation. I don't take it. My old Zen teacher said, "Don't uh, um, a spiritual person shouldn't eat off the altar." Love it. <laughs> hey, the key to life is selflessness, guys. And if you really want to become successful, help other people become successful. If you want to become wealthy, help other people become wealthy. And that is the name of the game. So August Turak, can you come back? Well, on he used to say, he said, he said the best 200. way to the best way to learn math is to teach math. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another uh there's another experiment uh, experiment that was done whenever it comes to jujitsu teachers. They always teach their student something, and the next day they come back for having this, and they have the student teach them or a class. Why? Because you learn more when you teach. It is so wild how the human right. body it's works. A, a, there's so many examples of of give, giving being a better strategy than taking. So, August, thank you. God so bless. Much, God man. bless. Mike. I really appreciate your time, guys. Check them out. Remember, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on.